Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Uh, Ben Hennig is a geographer and accidental cartographer. He's the co-founder and co-director of World Mapper, and he joins us today from Reykjavik to talk about his work mapping variables as diverse as where pumpkins grow to international migration, outlining the expertise, the skill and the flair needed for producing eye-catching maps. Ben has worked at the University of Sheffield and the University of Oxford in the UK, and is now a professor at the University of Iceland. He's a long-standing fellow of the society, and we're delighted to be in conversation with him. Great to have you with us today, Ben. Thanks for having me, and hi from Reykjavik. That's a great start. Um, as the creator of World Mapper and the author of countless online maps, do you see yourself as a geographer or a cartographer or something else? I should probably say before we talk about myself um, that World Mapper is, of course, not just my own project. It was started in Sheffield by a large group of people of the back then um, Social and Spatial Inequalities Research Group. So um, I, I, there's no way I can claim any of the credits to myself. Um, I see myself pretty much as a geographer, and I would not dare to call myself a cartographer. I think there are better people in, in making maps and doing cartography than I am. I just um, call myself an accidental cartographer because I sort of got into the map making world um, through my interest in geographic methods. I describe World Mapper as ink blob maps, which distort as your data or time frame changes. Um, is that a right way to go about it? Now that we've understood that you're you're not a data scientist, you're you're an accidental cartographer. <laughs> I I think um, I mean ink blob maps is a nice description for it. There's there's many different terms and words for it. We we should keep in mind that cartograms are not particularly new. They were invented like most mapping techniques and most most data visualization techniques were kind of invented in the 19th century. Um, this is when we find the early cartograms, the first cartograms that were made in, in France and in other places all around Europe with the increasing data revolution back then. So we had all this already happening before. And there were incredibly beautiful cartograms being created just at the turn of the last century, for example, which um, can equally compete with what we're doing with computers nowadays. And um, therefore, looking into the kind of style of maps that we're using with World Mapper basically is all about, um, or the world that we're trying, the work that we're trying to do with World Mapper is all about um, popularizing or normalizing the use of cartograms as an alternative form of mapping. So instead of um, using cartograms as this sort of very unusual depiction to make them more normal, that people become used to or accustomed to reading them. Because in the end, we have to keep in mind that we are not really born with the ability to read maps, but we are trained to learn how to read maps and what we should um, regard as being normal maps. And therefore, we can achieve the very same thing with cartograms. And you see that when you display cartograms, for example, to school children, they are much less surprised about these types of maps than, than grown-ups or adults like us are, because they are not as biased in what they expect the map to look like. So in the end, um, making effective cartograms is all about producing a very simple or effective design. And that's what we're trying to achieve or have, have been trying to achieve with World Mapper from the beginning to have um, something that 
um, helps people understand the actual underlying data and information that is displayed there. So of course, we're, we're working with this very unusual appearance and that catches people's eyes and grabs their attention. But on the other hand, um, it's really like I was saying before, it's really all about normalizing these types of depictions to make people engage with the actual themes that are displayed by it. So um, yeah, speaking about, about World Mapper is basically just an attempt to bring this basically century old mapping technique um, to a broader audience and to make it more normal, which I think in the UK has been quite successful already before there was World Mapper or in the early days of World Mapper, when you see the BBC using, for example, electoral cartograms during election night and people not questioning that. Whereas if you look at other European countries, um, these types of depictions are hardly used at all. So you see there can be a transformation or a change in how people use and work with these types of data visualizations. And data visualization in this regard and these type of mapping techniques can really help us to get a different understanding of, of what's in the information that we're mapping out, for example, when it comes to understanding elections and voter behavior and these kind of issues. You created some maps uh, in partnership with us for COP26, uh, a few of which were used in our climate change tile series. Um, what did you focus on and why for these um, last uh, pieces of work? Yeah, one of the core projects we worked on, and I should say this was mostly not myself, but um, my partner Tina, who works on the um, also on World Mapper, um, was a time series of carbon dioxide emissions that we kind of, we sat on that data set for quite a while already. And we were thinking like, this could be a very powerful way of, of displaying like the dynamics also that are related to issues um, that we're discussing in relation to climate change. So we had this data set or this time series of carbon dioxide emissions. And we started looking more into also utilizing animation in World Mapper in recent years, because um, animated cartograms are very powerful ways of displaying the changing quantities of displaying um, changing dynamics on our planet. So this was the core visualization we, we also produced for um, the climate change tile series. So what we were basically doing there is we looked at a series of, I think it was about 40 years of time, year by year, the annual carbon dioxide emissions um, coming from the different countries and basically showcased not only how the changing proportions look like at a global scale, but also the map itself start, slowly starts increasing in size. So we're also displaying the increasing quantities that are related to carbon dioxide emissions. And that's obviously one of the core problems that we're discussing when it comes to climate change um, or addressing and tackling climate change. So basically it showcases um, that at all level, uh, levels in the industrial nations, industrialized nations, as well as the emerging economies, we're looking at pretty much at a global problem and not a single country can make that big change or transformation that, but that you have to demonstrate like these changes happened over a series of decades. So economies, economies adapted to um, the problem of being reliant on carbon dioxide emissions and trying to reverse that trend and that's basically what, what is demonstrated in this animation. Trying to reverse this trend requires a similar effort in a much shorter period of time. So bringing the, the question or the scale of time into the play helps us to also appreciate the big challenge that we are facing um, when it comes to tackling or addressing climate change. It was such a spectacular visualization. Um, it, it really did bring a lot of 
core questions to 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 the forefront of people's minds. Um, and I always used to use world mapper graphics similar to the one we've just been talking about on on carbon dioxide emissions in in my lessons because they they stimulate discussion instantly. You have over a thousand maps on your website, which are as you've already said, freely accessible. Um, do you have a favourite one? Is it the last one you've just produced with Tina? I, I think it's a tricky question to ask. I mean, there's a couple of, of maps I really like quite a lot. I think one of um, my absolute favourites, or I keep coming back to, is um, the Earth at Night. It's a quite powerful visualisation that basically puts the um, NASA composite satellite image of Earth at Night onto a gridded population catagram. So basically you start seeing like where do people um, live in darkness at night or where do people or a lot of people waste quite a lot of energy by having very bright skies. So it blends out all the spaces where there are no people. And the reason why I quite like this map is it was one of the first um, applications for these gridded catagrams that I created back when I worked on my PhD and I started realizing, well, what I'm working on here is not just a, a geeky data visualization exercise, but it can actually be a quite powerful tool for visualizing these kind of different dimensions and putting them into a new context. So I would say it's one of the maps I, I as I said, I keep coming back to and I, I kept working on new versions of it when, when new NASA data came out also over the years. And maybe a second one, if I may, um, would be the human planet, which is like an egg-shaped visualization of um, global population distributions. Also, again, based on a gridded cartogram um, display, so something I worked on in my PhD research. And what it basically does is it applies the cartogram techniques to the entire planet's surface, so basically the oceans disappear from this map. And that's why you get this kind of egg-shaped visualization. It kind of resembles a um, one of these um, quite famous Mappe Mundi from medieval times where people were having this very sort of um, religiously biased um, yeah, European or Western-centric or centered mostly on, on Israel, Jerusalem, um, view of the world that has a lot of um, yeah, religious connotations attached to it. And when I looked at the human planet map that I created, I thought like this would be kind of a, an equivalent perspective of, of showcasing what our world nowadays is about. So the center of the map is basically um, the center of India. It shows where the population center is. Of course, we are using already a biased worldview by, by putting Europe into the center of the map before transforming it. But it kind of is an equivalent metaphor for our, our contemporary um, global distribution of people and where the center of, of the world really lies and moves us a little bit away from our very Eurocentric view that we might sometimes have when living in, in this part of the world. Does being based in Iceland alter your view of the world, do you think? And how do you decide what to map? <sighs> That's a um, that's an interesting question. I mean, I've, I've lived in many different countries in my life already. So I, I was born in Switzerland. I grew up in the Netherlands and Germany. I've lived in the UK for a long time. And now I moved to Iceland. I mean, still a very limited range um, in terms of living when you compare it to the extent of the planet. But even moving within Europe starts to make you appreciate that despite all of us living in very similar societies, all the cultures are still very different from each other. And you move to a new country and you start seeing like, well, life is different in, in different countries. And you start also seeing how this difference 
is defined by geography to a certain degree. Switzerland being a landlocked country, the UK being an island, Iceland being at the border of the Arctic or in the subarctic. So I think every step um, in my life really sort of informed my perspective on, on trying to see and understand the world. And I think living in Iceland really makes you appreciate a little bit more this um, human environmental relationship, what geography is about, because Icelanders live at the limits of where humans probably would normally settle down. It, was, it wouldn't be the first pick for the early humans to move to because it's a quite harsh environment, but obviously Icelanders have turned it into, into a quite habitable um, environment and they've created a wealthy society and starting to, to exploit to a certain degree or benefit from the resources, from the scarce resources that are here, but also then benefiting from globalization to sustain a certain lifestyle that wouldn't be possible just by living off the resources that Iceland has to offer. So I think that helped me to sort of reappreciate to a certain degree this, this question that I've always been interested in, in human environmental relationships. Obviously, looking at map making, some of the themes that um, we were looking at over the past few years on World Mapper are informed by events that are going on here, like coming back to volcanism, for example, we've just had this um, quite spectacular eruption just in front of our doorstep here near Reykjavik, just 25 kilometers um, from, from where I'm sitting here at the moment. It starts makes you, of course, like wherever you live makes you engage with the themes and topics that are relevant in that particular place. So it, it broadens your horizon to a certain degree. And living in Iceland certainly played a little bit of a part in, in all of this jigsaw of themes and topics that I'm, I'm interested in. And where do you get your data from once you've decided on the map and on the perspective? Um, and what counts as a reliable source? Quite often, actually, the um, you mentioned before, we have over a thousand maps on World Mapper um, that we re relaunched with a couple of years ago. Um, part of the themes for the maps comes from the data side. So we, we stumbled over an interesting data set and it's suitable um, for the kind of mapping that we're making. And then we turn it into a map because we're curious what it looks like. So partly some of the world mapper themes are data driven. Then obviously there are people who recommend themes to us or ask or request topics. And then we have obviously from, from my academic work um, um, come a couple of themes and people are requesting um, analysis in relation to that, which I then also deploy or <laughs> exploit to a certain degree for World Mapper to just have this sort of win-win situation of, of doing academic work, but also feeding stuff into World Mapper. Um, if we have particular themes that we are interested in, because it matters at the moment, speaking about, for example, carbon dioxide emissions, we basically try to look at what we would regard as respected data sources. So we would, uh, we would go to um, governmental or intergovernmental organizations, um, United Nations, for example, World Bank, OECD. Um, we would look at academic studies. Quite often you have papers published that are accompanied by data sets, which are, of course, peer reviewed and therefore respectable resources. We obviously have to rely mostly on open repositories because we cannot really pay for data ourselves. 
And then also looking at the theme of more environmental visualizations, physical geography, and these kind of themes, there's a whole wealth of information coming, for example, from, from NASA or the European Space Agency, so satellite observations, which, to be fair, is a lot easier data to work with because these satellites are just taking the data as it is, whereas socioeconomic data is a lot more difficult to to align at a global scale. And one of the challenges that we have with WorldMapper is um, that we need consistent data sets. So we cannot afford to just have a no data value, which in a normal map you can just display as a gray no data field. But for cartograms, you need complete data sets. So you need to fill up the gaps. That's also why quite often, like 80% of the time is data pre-processing before we actually create the cartograms because we need to fill up the gaps. So we need to estimate values. We need to look at other studies in order to, to feed into the data gaps, which even intergovernmental organizations quite often have because they're not using the same territories that we have or they're just um, looking at the COVID cases, for example. The World Health Organization for political reason doesn't include Taiwan in their statistics, but we have Taiwan as a separate territory in the world map of visualizations. So all of these things need to be sorted out. And coming back to your question about what is reliable data, I would say, of course, since we, in most cases at least, we cannot collect the data ourselves, we would just try to make a judgment on the reliability of the source based on its reputation. And there we rely on um, or trust intergovernmental organizations. Mostly we look at the metadata. So if we can identify how the data was collected, how it was harmonized, um, so how, how countries were aligned with each other. And this kind of documentation of the data helps us to understand whether it's a reliable data source or not. And um, these organizations usually do a quite good job in documenting the caveats that data, data might, might have connected to it. And then we try to also document this on WorldMapper. So whatever we estimate for ourselves, um, for example, we would document in the data sheets that we provide on WorldMapper so that people can understand what we did there and how we came to the numbers and the conclusions that we, we drew from there. And if there are certain caveats in the original data, we would try to also replicate or put this into the description so that people can make their own judgment about um, the work that we have been doing. So basically, we see how well documented the data is. And um, our aim is to also then explain the caveats that are connected to the data and what it shows and what it might not be able to show. And that's, I mean, data in the end, that's one of the key problems that you always have when you're mapping out information. First of all, data is outdated by the time that it's published, but then also data is always not an accurate depiction of the world because the world is a dynamic place. Even if you have population statistics, they are a snapshot in time. There are over and underestimations trying, as I was saying before, trying to compare countries is extremely difficult because they might count things differently. I think people got more appreciation for this during the pandemic now, starting to understand that every country counts cases or mortality and so on in a different way. So trying to produce global data sets is a really huge challenge. And um, therefore, you shouldn't underestimate how much work, not only from for example, from our side, but from the side of the people who produce the data goes into it. And these agencies and institutions, which 
I guess since the financial crisis also have much, much more limited resources in, in trying to keep these open data repositories up and running. Such a complicated art form uh, or, or, or science, I should say. Um, that, that's really clear from your answer there. Um, what is your next project? I'm currently, it's been a project I've been having on my agenda for quite some time. And um, there I, I blame COVID and, and having a little child and so on as well. Um, I'm working towards an, an actual printed Atlas project, mostly um, deploying my gridded cartograms. Um, so kind of working title is Atlas of the Anthropocene. And it sort of um, brings really my core interest in geography in in to a, a visual form. So including quite a lot of the maps, obviously, that already have the seen the light of the day, but really extending that towards um, a much broader look at global change, global issues, and how human societies and natural environments are connected. So taking basically what, what um, was done with the World Mapper Atlas many, many years ago, taking that to another level by also integrating much more of the physical geography and environmental perspectives. So I'm hoping to get some time once the semester is over to really get going with um, with um, concluding or at least continuing my work on that. And then hopefully, I mean, never talk about books that haven't been published yet, but hopefully in, in a couple of years time, this will be an actual finished physical product in, in front of all of us. So that's one of my main next big projects, aside, of course, from the everyday academic projects and work that I'm I'm doing here at the University of Iceland. And then also what we aim to do in WordMapper, we should not forget WordMapper itself is a spare time project. So we, we sit at this in our evenings and weekends and so on. But of course, we, we have a number of themes and topics and, and ideas lined up for WordMapper in itself and hopefully get, get to grips with working and continuing these. Um, finally, Ben, this is designed to be controversial right at the end of the podcast. Is cartography still important? And are all types of maps included in that, i.e. digital versus uh, by hand mapping or on the ground versus earth observation, etc.? This is indeed controversial. There has been a, an essay a couple of years ago, quite some time ago already, saying cartography is dead, obviously referring to all the digital developments. We've got our mobile phones with Google Maps, Apple Maps, you name it. So why do we need cartography? Is it doesn't matter at all. I would say quite the contrary. We probably need it now more than ever. What cartography really does, and it's been wrapped in many different um, in different, with, uh, different ways, like spatial analysis, GI science, data science, geographic data science, geovisualization, take all these terms put together. In the end, they're all still traditional cartographic works, just brought to the modern era, but they are still doing what people like Humboldt and then big cartographers over the centuries kept working on. So very traditional skills of effectively communicating um, or effectively communicating information and effectively communicating geography, that hasn't really changed. Just many people don't really dare to call it cartography anymore because it sounds maybe a bit dusty, antiquated, but in the end, it's still all cartography. And some of the virtues of cartography, I think we shouldn't hide ourselves um, into advocating these and that cartography and design principles and visualization and this sort of um, 
connection of art and science is actually really important if you want to help people making sense of, of data and of visualization. So not just um, trying to produce fanciful visualizations because we can do it with the digital tools that we have, but also putting our brain into it and start to think before we actually put something onto a map. So cartography is actually really important. And I would argue, I, I was writing that back in my PhD thesis, uh, much more importantly, um, what matters most in all of this is geography. I, I think cartography is, is one of the tools and one of the subdisciplines that we utilize in geography, but what is needed as much as cartography is geographic thinking. So to basically generate something like a new understanding of the large quantity of information that we are collecting nowadays. I was saying already, like when I was referring to Humboldt, we saw this data revolution in the 19th century when all the censuses started popping up in mostly first in the, in the European um, countries, North America, and then all over the world where we needed new tools and we needed new ways of making sense of this data. This is when statistics started to thrive and all the methods and statistics that we are now using as normal, even when we just click a button in Excel or in a spreadsheet, this came from that period where we had this significant growth of data. And then at the same time, we saw cartography really becoming much more diverse in terms of visualizing information. So all of these kind of visualization techniques and cartography that we deploy nowadays was invented back then. So what we are basically seeing now is we have another exponential growth of information and data. That means we need to rediscover these kind of virtues of, um, of what made cartography actually relevant and important in describing the complexity of our world nowadays. And um, also referring back to my PhD, I think it was just around the time of the 500th birthday of Mercator. Um, I was putting this as a conclusion in there saying basically that maybe 500 years after Mercator, it might be time to change our views of the world from um, views that guide ships over the planet's surface to views that guide basically us into a more sustainable future. And this is why we need cartography. And this is why we need geography in, um, in all of these visualizations and all of these aspects to basically effectively communicate and to demonstrate that geography has a lot to contribute into um, explaining um, these events that really matter a lot to people at a global scale, not just at, at national level anymore, but as, as the just um, and concluding COP summit was showing us, these are problems that we cannot solve just within our countries, but we need to have these global perspectives because everything is interconnected. So let's move on from Mercator, which is still important and it's um, something we need for navigating um, just to get from A to B. But we also need a new kind of um, platform for navigation into a more sustainable future. And this is where geography and cartography actually matter quite a lot and are really important fields. Such an important field and form of visualization, and of course, a key skill uh, in geography. Um, it's been so great uh, talking to you today, Ben. We can't wait to see your Atlas of the Anthropocene and to hopefully read your book in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time. And um, yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures, 
and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.